Hi, friends. Welcome to another episode of That Sounds Fun. I'm your host, Annie F. Downs. So happy to be here with you today. Love hearing from y'all about how much you're enjoying the Ennea Summer 2020 shows. But these days, like last week where we had Paula Ferris on Wednesday, we get to have some special episodes in between as this month goes on. Hey, the music in the background, though, is from our good buddy, Mr. Ryan O'Neill, also known as Sleeping at Last. He's handling all the music for us this summer with the Ennea Summer shows, and that includes today. This is the Enneagram song about being a seven. So you can go through and listen to all the Enneagram songs wherever you love to listen to music. Hey, this is fun to tell you about, but we are going to start another round of 100 Days to Brave as a big group, and we are going to start on Monday, August 3rd. So all you need to do is grab a copy of 100 Days to Brave or the brand new 100 Days to Brave journal. If you've already done the 100 Days journey with us before, why don't you switch to the new journal? It'll be a different experience for you than just the normal book that you've done before. But if you've never done it before, get one or the other. You don't have to do both, but you can. But you want to join us as we start 100 Days to Brave. Has there ever been a time in our world when we all needed just a little more courage We normally only do 100 Days to Brave as a big group once a year, but this year is just different. And it just felt like it mattered to circle up in our group of friends, you and me and whoever wants to join us and go through these 100 days again together. So all you have to do now is grab a copy of 100 Days to Brave or the new 100 Days to Brave journal and mark on your calendar that we are starting together on August 3rd. Today on the show, our good buddy, Mr. John Tyson is back, y'all. I know. After we had him on the Monday after Easter, my internet blew up with people going, we want more from John Tyson. Lucky for you, voila. Here it is, my friends. Not only is John on the podcast today, he also has a book release today called Beautiful Resistance, The Joy of Conviction in a Culture of Compromise. And I'm telling you, it is a book for this moment, y'all. It is a book for this moment. So call your favorite bookstore or open your browser and go to your favorite place to order books online. Grab a copy of 100 Days to Brave and Beautiful Resistance today. I think you're really going to love John's work and uh, the words he's put to this. Today's conversation was really meaningful to me and really special, and I'm so so thankful for him. So here is my conversation with Pastor John Tyson. John, thanks for joining us again. Thank you so much for having me back on. Always fun times. I mean, I just kind of, I don't know another guest that we've had on twice in about three months. So there's a trophy on its way to you in New York for that. Well, thank you. That's your that's your generosity, and I receive it. No, no, no. It's it's because I'm really excited to continue talking to you. For starters, I need you to know that on the last show, you told me to listen to John Coltrane, and I have obeyed, and he's amazing. Yeah, I mean, he he is in a category of his own. I genuinely believe that, both in terms of innovation and uh, what he overcame. If you read the liner notes on the album Love Supreme, Uh if you actually read what he wrote, there is like a whole prayer on that. That is one of the most beautiful, compelling things. Really? Yeah, and I actually think Keller's book um, on faith and work, Uh um, Every Good Endeavor, part of that was was taken from a John Coltrane uh, liner note from one of his records. We don't ever get to read liner notes anymore. What is a liner note? It's such a foreign concept, isn't it? But it was so interesting to me. Yeah. Do you read the uh, acknowledgments in books as well? 
Um, I always try and see who's behind what. Yes. So I, I try to. I try and see who's, yes. who's given that cred. I am the exact same. I mean, I'll get a new book, and the first thing I go and read is the acknowledgments because I'm like, who is a part of this? Who's their agent? Who's their publisher? Who did they think helped them the most? I just think that part is so interesting. Yeah, totally. Um, okay, the other thing you didn't tell us when you were on the show in April, I think it was, it was the Monday after Easter, is that you had covid like you were sick when you got on with me. Bless your heart. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was there was a little bit of COVID. My whole family had the COVID. I didn't, I mean, I had it badly for maybe 10 to 14 days where it was like very, uh, just tons of pain and trouble breathing. And I was actually saying to my wife yesterday, I don't think my lungs are fully back and it's been months and months. I still feel almost like I'm having a panic attack occasionally. And, right, because um, it's just so tight. Yeah, it's like, oh, gosh, I'm having trouble breathing. But my wife was in bed sick for almost a month. I mean, very, very dark, very scary. And this is when in New York it's hard to, to, to really articulate the level of anxiety the city was gripped by. So, it, you know, 80, I think it was 86% or something like that, 84% of people who went onto ventilators died. And so basically a ventilator wasn't a life-saving thing. It was a death sentence. And so my, um, my wife was just terrified of going to the hospital and getting on a ventilator. So there were several times I was like, babes, we got to go. And she's like, I refuse to. I will die in this bed. And I was like, you can't be talking to me like this. Yeah. I mean, she's doing voice memo notes to my kids. <gasps> And her future grandkids, Haley for her wedding day. I mean, it was like a straight-up scene, but there was a lot. We're all fine, and there was a lot of people who had it a lot, lot worse than us, so we don't try and offer it out there. That is so scary. Yeah, it's definitely real. For those who think it's a government conspiracy and not a big deal, you need to get a little closer to it. Right. A minute ago you said New York was gripped in anxiety. Do you feel like it's not anymore? It's definitely changed. I think people are just sick of it. I think they're just sick of it. You know, I mean, I've just come from a um, one and a half hour walk around Midtown Manhattan. And um, this is what I would say. It feels like people have collapsed inward in a disproportionate way. This is just a general fear of interacting. So um, there's very little street energy. It's hard to articulate. And I was just talking with um, Tyler, who's one of our um, team members here. He's in the Upper West Side. And he said, basically, the Upper West Side feels uh, pretty different. Um, Why is that? Because it's so many less tourists? Yeah, less tourists. Um, 50% or so of the Upper West Side has moved out of New York, according to the New York Times. And he said 25% of the shops were already closed before COVID. It felt like Detroit last time I walked to church. We, we have a church that meets at 96th Street. We used to. I don't know if we still do. But I would walk from Hell's Kitchen on 45th up to 96th. And I was like, oh, my gosh, Broadway. Broadway feels like it's dying. And that was before COVID. So I've, I, I, we've got a picnic on Saturday for the church. So uh, that's up that part of the city. So I'll, I'll go up there and see that. But, oh, the New York we love is like it's um, it's now the real commitment as to whether you love New York because it was a cool, sexy, trendy place or you love this place for its people and you're here to rebuild the future. So that's what... You know we're we're doubling down. We're trying to we're trying to put our roots deeper than ever, but it it feels heartbreaking. I was reading this morning in James about 
where it says, let perseverance finish its work. And it made me thoughtful about talking to you today because I thought, man, what is it going to take of faith people in New York? But also, I mean, everybody, whether they're afraid of getting sick still or not, everybody is tired of this. Oh, yeah. America just, uh, I mean, not even America. I mean, the, the human the human condition is it, we are not designed um we are not designed to be isolated and separated. You know, it's actually yeah. given me, I've got a, my brother-in-law has been in prison for 30 years, maximum security. And um, I, I've, I've actually thought about him a lot during this time because just the isolation and the separation and what it's doing to our mental health and all the rest of it. I, I have very, very real appreciation for those who are living like this in, uh, in real ways. So yeah, it's, it's going to be an interesting couple of years, and then you get you get to go from COVID into um, all the racial uh, tensions, protests for injustice, and then we're going to go into an election and probably a, a very traumatized economy. So you know, anytime you want to pick up that, are we going to seek God for revival prayer? Uh, little thread that we had earlier. Yeah, let me know because it's like we didn't get there in COVID. We didn't get yeah. we didn't get where we needed to get. We sort of did the panic prayers and then got over it when it looked like we we're going to make it. Yeah. And um, I'm like, gosh, what's it going to take really to bring us to our knees? I mean, in just like absolute gut level desperation for God to break in. So whew, what a time to be alive. But this is what I keep telling our church. God knows he's entrusted us here. He's put us here because of all the people who've ever lived. He said, you're the ones that will steward this moment. So let's take it with joy and responsibility, even though it's heavy. I've thought about that a lot, John. I thought, I cannot believe he picked me to be a grown-up in the middle of this. <laughs> right? Like there's so yeah. many generations that I would have picked over me to be a, a voice and an adult and, a, and a, a, a leader in the middle of all of Because I'm with you. That whole list you just rallied off, as a person who identifies as an Enneagram 7, John, all that feels incredibly daunting that we don't have a release from this and yet perseverance is what makes us mature and complete we need people like you to provide release valves uh, in the midst of this that's the gift my, my wife says all the time we need another seven on the team we need another seven on teams getting too heavy so okay so i just get to keep planning fun and help and still i mean Come on. my book that comes out in february is called that sounds fun because i was like We've got to remind people how to find joy in the life that they have, even if it's in their house. No, I, I totally agree. I, I just had this whole conversation with my wife yesterday. I said, babes, we have to use the agency that we have to build a life filled with joy. Our default state as Christians should be joy biblically. Jesus said, I'm, I'm giving, I put my joy in you that it may be complete. And joy is one of the definitive marks of the kingdom of God. And I actually read this um, really interesting book on the psychotic, uh, basically the neurology of what's happening in the brain around joy. Uh -huh. And um, I, I came across it in a book called Divine Sex. And he basically says the brain has a joy center, which means it's the only part of the brain that never stops growing. And it's the only part of the brain that overrides our base instincts like depression and addiction. And so basically when we tend to the joy in our lives, it produces a kind of supernatural willpower to resist ungodly temptation.
But that's was so fascinating. Yeah, how do we drum that up in ourselves when I mean you said it's going to be a hard couple of years. I mean like how do we go after that? How are y'all going after that? I guess is the better question like as Church of the City New York, as your family, as your building, like how do you go after joy when it isn't like hang in there guys, it'll be over in a couple of days. It's like we don't know when this pressure and this sadness and this lament lets up at all. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, let's get into it. I have a chapter here in this book, Beautiful Resistance, called Celebration Must Resist Cynicism. So those are my deepest thoughts on it. But it's basically you have to find a way to be present and see the wonder that is actually in your life. And it's amazing. And so it's it's rituals, it's traditions, it's imputing meaning to the ordinary. It is um, it is putting a boundary around something so you can pay attention to it. And then it's it's basically doing celebration as a resistant as a spiritual discipline of resistance against despair. And um, so in in our family, we do a um, tell me the best story of your week. It's uh-huh. like a little story, little storytelling thing best moment of your week what are you finding joy in right now um obviously do the sabbath every week but favorite foods um sharing stuff that we've read that we've liked those those sorts of things we're basically making it a central spiritual practice at this time because if we don't we're going to be swallowed whole by despair and particularly the media like trickle charges it's like it trickle charges your heart with sadness and brokenness and that's we're not designed. Our hearts are not designed for the level of carnage that is bled into our hearts through the media in the world today. So we've got to got to put boundaries in place, and then we've got to got to cultivate the good stuff. I remember us talking in April, and you were like, when it was COVID was the center of our conversation and revival, and you're like, I don't know how beautiful resistance is going to land in July. When I don't know if we'll be even talking about that. And as I've read it, I've been like. John, this is one of the most prophetically placed books I've ever known. I mean, do you do you feel that, that the Lord put it at the right time? Yeah, I mean, I got stuff on here on in like a white privilege. I got stuff right. on, you know, I mean, basically the church being over-identified with politics and losing, losing credibility. So, no, definitely I'm very grateful because I was going to let this one just sort of go like, okay, God, if, you know, just I put a lot of work into this. It feels like it has nothing to do with the moment. So, but now it feels like honestly incredibly timely. And one of the things I worked so hard, I did a 10,000 word study guide, which is actually a book on its own. Uh, that got edited down, obviously, so they could fit it in. But I feel like people going through this in community, doing what's in it. If, if you don't do what's in the book, it's going to be an okay book. If you do what's in it, if you like take these practices and you implement them, radical things will happen in your life. So, yeah, I'm really grateful. It does feel like a timely book and um, only God can orchestrate things like that. So right. I am grateful for that. Right. I mean, I just, and I'll tell people the subtitle, The Joy of Conviction in a Culture of Compromise. And John, I'll tell you, it's something that we have, I mean, some of my coworkers and I sat in our office and cried on today. We're recording on a Thursday. We cried on Monday about a conviction we have that is going to cost friendship as well as maybe listenership. 
yeah. which that's not as near as big a deal as losing friends, obviously. But can you talk a little bit about why we're going to have to hold our convictions that we bu- biblically align to even, even when it's going to cost us? One of the, the key components of being a follower of Jesus is, is being, so I, I always talk about, um, we, we talk about faith primarily sometimes from a theological or propositional framework. I believe this to be true. This is my worldview. But faith has way more of a relational component to it than we ever sort of talk on with, yeah, talk about. Or yep. And so I, just like I don't care what people say about, you know, my wife because I know her and I will like literally throw down for her. I will just, you know, 100% ride or die with Mrs. T. Um, it's a covenant relationship we're in. So in the same way, it's about loyalty to Jesus himself. And, th- and that's what, that, what Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? It is an issue of our obedience and our convictions are based on love and loyalty to Jesus. So in America, for the most part, we've had, it hasn't really cost us much. We've enjoyed, um, you know, basically fellowship with Jesus, like Paul talks about in Philippians 3. But no one wants the fellowship of his sufferings. And I, I believe that there is a kind of joy and intimacy that is released when you are loyal to Jesus. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this. He says, leap for joy. <laughs> leap for joy whenever you are slandered for my name's sake. And so part of the things we have to be sure that we're really being true to Jesus, um, not just the person of Jesus we've created, but that's where the joy is. It's in fellowship with him. It's entering to his sufferings. It's knowing that we're pleasing his heart and and that we're going to see him face to face and give an account, and he's not going to be ashamed of us. He said, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you in front of my father. But if we're not ashamed, he will announce us before his father. I mean, you got to get your eyes on that day and, and the joy of him saying, well done, good and what? Faithful servant. You're faithful to me. And so that's to me is, is like the, the anchor of um, real joy. It's relational. You said a really important thing to me in there of all of you need to know you're being faithful to Jesus, not the Jesus you've created, but the actual Jesus. Because the thing that keeps me up at night sometimes, John, is there are going to be people who vote down both party lines in November that both feel like they're obeying Jesus. And there are going to be people who fall on every side of every argument who feel like they're being faithful to Jesus. How how can we be sure that we know the Jesus of the Bible, not the one that's American created or Western culture Jesus? So one thing I want to say is I don't know anybody to, I mean, I just bumped into Al Sharpton on the street smoking a cigar about 40 <laughs> minutes ago and I had like a quick chat with him. Um, I don't know. I don't know anybody who is sitting here saying, Jesus wants me to vote for fill in the blank because this is God's man. Right. You know, I think there's a bunch of people who are like, we are in a bit of a lose-lose reality. Yeah. And so there's, I, I don't know anybody who's like, yes, this is our moment. Maybe there's a few people out there, but almost every Christian I know, um, either on the left and on the right, are like, this is the best we've got. And I think everybody's sad 
that after America has been around this long, this is the best we can do in politics. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And um, so I think, so I just want to clarify, I, I think that a lot of people are like hugely disappointed and trying to basically make the best of a lose-lose situation. Here's what I know about Jesus. I go to bed every night listening to um, the Gospels. So I, I just put the Gospels on in my Dwell Bible app and I just, and, you know, I was listening last night and I couldn't sleep. So probably for an hour and a half, I just listened to the I am statements of Jesus. And Jesus is always rebuking me. He's always offending me. And so just when you think he's, you're like, yeah, I'm on Jesus' side, he comes along and says something else. There's like a punch in the face. And so I, I think the key is we've got to stay in the Gospels. Now, we all bring to the Gospels um, our own sort of perspective and background. But I believe that when we get into the Gospels, we're creating an environment in our hearts and minds that enables Jesus to reveal himself to us in fresh ways. The second thing I would say is obedience. Jesus says uh, if uh, the, the way your love is really manifest is through obedience. And uh, in John, I think, yeah, John 14, he says, Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. We will come to him and make our home in him. And I'm like, what? And he says, and I will show myself to him. That I have sat on that last week, really, that verse of going, Jesus says he'll show himself to me. What does that even mean? Here's what it means. Here's what it means. If you obey and you remain, your chances of not being deceived by a cultural version of Jesus go way up. That's it. And so it was one of, one of my friends said to me very early on uh, in my years as a pastor, never leave the Gospels. Never leave the Gospels. You always have to read the Gospels, meditate on the Gospels, stay in the Gospels. And so that's a practice I've kept. And, again, anytime you, you read something and you sense a prompting of the Spirit, you've got to obey it. Jesus has 50 commands in the Gospels, 50 things he explicitly says that we're supposed to do. And I think a lot of times we don't think that Jesus wants, Jesus offers commands. He just offers. I'll say this. I'm constantly amazed at moral therapeutic deism and how that we default to that so much. You know, like we, we often end up just creating an image of God. Um, he's basically, he's, he just wants us to be nice. He wants us to be happy. He doesn't bother us unless something's hard. If you're good, you're going to get to heaven. And we're gonna we're gonna fight against those cultural versions. So yeah, in the gospels and obeying whatever we sense the spirit saying to us. I'm guessing that our friends listening are kind of laughing as you're talking because what they know that I don't think I told you last time is literally for the entire year of 2020, I read my reading plan every day is reading the gospels every month. So I'm on my seventh loop of the gospels right now. I love that. And I love that. It has changed my life. And I've been a Christian for 35 years. I mean, since I was a kid, and it has changed my life to read the exact same thing every month, and every time something else stands out to me. But the reason I did it, John, was in December, that's what I felt the push from the Lord is like, you need to know Jesus. And I I mean, none of us could have known what this year was going to hold, but that's that was the f- push is I was like, I, I want his voice to be the loudest voice. And the pressure to compromise in our culture as I felt pressure increase on me, I, I was saying what made us cry on Monday, as I was saying, as the pressure has increased, it hasn't made me question my convictions. It's made them clearer. You know, I don't know what it is, but the, the older I get, I, I feel too like I have both two things. I have more, 
I have more nuance and empathy for people and my convictions get way clearer and stronger at the same time. And uh, I think there's, there's something to that. At the end of the day, it's really about obedience. It's really about what do I sense God saying to me? Okay, come what may. You know, Luther said, here I stand. And then you've just got to gotta lean into it either way. And then we've got to realize more than anything, we're going to give an account for God. Like in 1 Corinthians 4, it says, each one of us will give an account before God. The motives of our hearts will be revealed. And each one of us will receive their praise from God. And I think about the day of judgment a lot. Um, and, you know, my theology is it's, it's a judgment for rewards. But it's... I, I'm going to get a one-on-one with Jesus and he's going to go, okay, John, you know, so so glad you're here. Um, let's just go through a few things together. And he's going to know the deepest motive of my heart. And so at the end of the day, if you're aligning your heart with at the deepest core of your being who you believe Jesus to be, that that is the joy and that is the goal of the Christian life, you know. So you should also know I turned 40 this week. So I'm also having some, oh, I know. Welcome to the club. Thank Congratulations. you. Thank you. I'm actually going to ask you a question about it in just a minute. But, but I, so I'm wondering if it just feels more intense to me right now. All of this. I mean, really, maybe it's because I'm reading beautiful resistance. Maybe it's because of our culture. Maybe it's turning 40. Maybe it's the mix of all of them, but it does feel like our standing on our convictions while being full of love is the highest calling right now. I, I totally agree. The, these are these are times of tremendous, tremendous pressure and conviction. And what is inside of us is being revealed. And so, so much of the challenge, when, when I talk to older people, they say this feels very much like 1968. Tell us about 1968. Well, I mean, that was, I think, uh, the Democratic National Convention, the riots, they're processing the Vietnam War, the counterculture is breaking out, sort of traditional family values, all that stuff disappearing, free love, uh, you know, Black Panthers, all of this stuff is sort of like emerging onto the scene and shaking the American psyche. And uh, so you're basically going from the, the post-World War II boom, stable family, suburbanization into the, yeah, I think 1969 was the summer of love. And so right before all of that kicked off was all of these inflection points all sort of moving together. And um, so, you know, the biggest event probably in our lives uh, that, that we felt as adults was probably the economic meltdown, probably not 9-11. I, I, I was in Nashville, actually. I was in Franklin on a treadmill when the, um, the Twin Towers fell. But I, that was, it felt very distant. I was in my early 20s. 2008, being here in New York, I definitely felt that. So we just haven't had a moment like this in our lifetimes that we've had to face as adults taking responsibility for the shaping of culture. So there is, I think, there's a combination of, yeah, it's basically what you said. There's a combination of age, cultural forces, a shared global pandemic, which I don't think we've ever had a global moment like this in our lifetime as well. So, yeah, coming with conviction and coming with a heart full of love 
and having a commitment to be faithful in it is the core charge of the moment. Again, Luther said, if a man confesses faithfulness to Christ in every point of his theology except the one point being pushed by the culture at that moment, he has not been faithful to Christ. And so we do, I think, have to find these points where um, Jesus is asking us to be loyal to him and then just take our stand and do it with it. That's why it's called beautiful resistance, not bitter resistance or angry resistance. I'm not saying there's not a place for godly anger, but we have to build a compelling counterculture that the world says, please let there be something other than just cycles of violence and retribution, power dynamics, demonizing the other, and a quest to basically make America in our ideological image. There's got to be an alternative outside of these dynamics. And the answer is yes, this is called the kingdom of God. And um, the more we follow Jesus with integrity, the more we have to offer the world in the midst of this moment. So, I mean, you're feeling it. We're all feeling it, I think. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking about our friends listening who you and I have different challenges in this because we're so public. But there are so many of our friends listening who are who feel the same concerns and and they're worried about the other moms in the neighborhood not wanting to come over anymore because of their political stance or because of what they believe their neighbor believes, or they're worried about the other guys at work who won't invite them to, you know, watch sports with them because they took a stand for us in a situation that was obedient to Jesus. What's the hope for people like that, that feel like, man, I may lose real community by standing with my conviction. Well, I mean, there's two parts. Part of it is, part of it is sometimes the cost of loyalty is the loss of friendships. That's what it is. I mean, and. That makes me cry, man. I hate that. Yeah. I mean, Jesus was betrayed with a kiss. I mean, his, his, all of his friends <laughs> ran away from him. You know, so like we have to realize there's a cost. What, what can't enter in is self-righteousness. And this is, this is my, my true concern. Um, you know, I, I have people who I consider my theological enemies. I mean, I'm at war with them who are still my friends who I am kind to because, because um, they matter to God. And, and my call is to, to even to love my enemies, even my theological enemies, you know, so there's got to be a sweetness to our spirits, and um, so that that so part of the problem is, in general, we don't know how to do close contact uh, conflict very well. So we're always pretty superficial. This stuff is so visceral, and it feels so much more costly because we've all been isolated from each other, and the psychological state you have to get into to cut somebody off from your life is not a psychological state that we're used to being in. And um, so there's a, yeah, there's disproportionate levels of trauma associated with it. So what I would always say is like, gosh, are we going to really? So, so number one, if the biggest issue in your life is politics, you've got disordered loves. The biggest issue in our life should be Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus said this explicitly. I'm not saying there's not an overlap between God's kingdom and politics, but I'm saying you have more in common with someone whose politics you disagree with, who is a follower of Jesus, than someone who you agree with politically but is not a follower of Jesus. Our our family loyalties in the kingdom of God are the deepest loyalties. We owe that to each other. 
Now, somebody who says your political voting reveals um, your lack of loyalty to Jesus or whatever, like if, if we're basically making this like a litmus test of faithfulness to Jesus, how we vote politically, I think in America right now, we can't say that with full biblical conviction like we could in other times of history because it all depends on the issues that you look at. I mean, you know, trust me, I am no fan of Trump. I'm not like your Trump guy here. (laughs) I'm not going to condemn 100% categorically everything he has done. It's just too simplistic of a narrative. Totalizing narratives that are being weaponized to take each other out inside the church are more a plan of the enemy than they are the will of God. And so what we need is basically to stop moralizing our preferences and show some mercy to one another and, um, you know, try and try and see where other people are coming from. And we need to understand there's multiple dynamics too. I mean, so much of this is not, is not primarily about race, though that is certainly a very real component. A lot of it is about class, which is what we never really address. And, um, so the church is fragmented in every which way, and uh, we have to find ways. To, you know, like Ephesians 4, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope, one calling. And I, I've got a secret conviction that unity is such, it's like a nuclear-level weapon against Satan, unity in the church, unity against believers, that the enemy will do anything in his power to stop it happening. And so... If, if, if he can just, he'll find any way, shape or form, form to divide us because I think it is just, there's something supernatural. There's unity in the Trinity, unity on the day of Pentecost, the best moments in church history are moments of deep unity. And I feel like Satan wants to get us caught up in a million other things rather than gathering his, you know, one in heart, one in mind, one in soul. And um, if we don't have the image of Jesus, like Philippians 2 tells us, consider others better than yourselves, look not only to your own interests but to the interests of others. If we don't see Jesus' willing descent for the sake of others, we're never going to get to that kind of unity. So the, the, the task is large. We need a resistance. We need a straight-up movement of people willing to fight their way through this right now. So what does it look like for us to be a part of that how do we do unity in our neighborhoods? And I'm thinking about who can, who are people going to see? Well, you only kind of see the people who are living right around you right now, <laughs> right? So besides Twitter, which is just a dumpster fire when you're trying to do unity in the church. I've never heard that term, and I will use that for the rest of my life. <laughs> you are welcome to. What does it look like for us to really, I mean, hold our convictions, love really well, be a part of unity, but sometimes convictions cost you friendship. Well, I think, you know, part of part of the problem is that nobody is painting a compelling picture of the future that we can rally towards. And that's that's the, what we need. We basically need a kingdom imagination where on a very local practical level, we are, we are building the future we have convictions about. And so I, I think there's actually a crisis of, of public imagination. You know, we, we live in such a time of deconstruction. Everybody's, you know, like, deeply committed to the project of deconstructing everything. Nobody knows how to build. And so it is not a victory to sit in a pile of rubble. The skill is building something beautiful as a result of it. So to me, that is like um, going deeper into the community and relationships that you live in. Like what are the what are the needs present in each of our families that we can help one another on? 
What are the needs in our local community? What would Jesus say about these things? How, how can we rally our time, energy, resources, gifts, attention towards, you know, embodying the very thing that we want? I said, you know, we've tried to, our churches wrestled, you know, wrestling very deeply with the issue of um, sort of race and racial justice right now. Um, you know, our church is in the middle of Manhattan. It is a pretty, pretty affluent uh, church. And um, one of the things people keep saying to me is like, what's our church going to do? And I'm like, our church is going to do a lot. We do have a plan. We have been working on this behind the scenes for many years. The question is not what's our church going to do. The question is what are you going to do? You know, like we, we, we cannot push off the, we cannot scapegoat institutions alone. We cannot scapegoat politicians. We have to embody the thing that we hope to see. And the more we actually do that on the, the local level, the more sort of social capital and relational capital, imagination sort of capital there is to actually begin to build the future. So, you know, maybe it's time to actually do like a neighbourhood audit of like what, are the, like what are the greatest needs in our community and our families and how can we like commit to the, the way of Jesus and doing those things together. I said to our church, I said, you know what I've never met? Someone with like a kingdom vision board. I've met 100 people with self-help boards or decorating boards, but show me the person who has a kingdom vision board of what it looks like when more of Jesus' uh, rule and reign breaks in. That's what we need. We should make that. <laughs> I want to make that. Okay, will you talk to me a little bit about being in my 40s? Oh, oh gosh. I mean... <laughs> I mean, I'm only two days in, but okay. it's been great so far. Oh, gosh, your 40s. I mean, I mean... The best book I read, I mean, I actually can't even recommend it to, to people. It's a book on Jungian psychology called The Middle Passage. And here, here's what it basically says. Here's the big idea of the book. Here's the, the one-page cliff notes. You've got an appointment coming with your true self that is long overdue, that has been buried under other people's expectations and cultural pressure. And that that true you who has sort of not gotten to do the deepest parts of your calling is about to schedule an emergency visit to chat about a few things. That's the book in essence. And it basically says you're aware of time in a completely different way. Before 40, you're kind of like, oh, gosh, I'm going to turn 40. Or when you're in your 20s, you're like, gosh, I need to get my act together in my 30s because when you turn 30, that's when that's when Jesus did his thing. And I, I <laughs> right. But once you hit 40, I'm 43. Once you hit you hit. 40, you're like, crap, next is 50, mm -hmm. and then you're basically 60, and then until <laughs> you die, it all just collapses, and you just have this profound uh, sense of awareness. So one of the things that I did, um, I, one, one of my coaches said to me, he said, John, your personality, your level of nostalgia, 40 is going to hit you hard. So the summer before I turned 40, I, I basically tried to have a theologically informed midlife crisis. So I spent three months walking around probing all the angst and uncertainty in my heart. And I basically came out of it with this, this exercise I called Sovereign Themes, which is like what are the things in my life? And I'm not talking necessarily about spiritual gifts or whatever because you, you obviously develop those because you have to. And I'm not talking necessarily just about your vocation because you, you figure out how to do that stuff. But like maybe underneath that, what are the sovereign themes that you've always been aware of but you never put in high definition and maybe they're like clues to the second half of your life 
And then maybe those sovereign themes are what defines the second half of your life. What you, so before you're like, oh, that's interesting, or people go, that's crazy, that's like so different from everyone else's story. But then maybe those things are actually sort of meant to be cemented into the future. So I did that. I came out with four sovereign themes, four things that I was like, okay, I've never made these like great values of my life. They've always been in there and I've always kind of felt an ease around them but now I'm going to shape them. So I encourage people like pay attention to your story and then figure out explicitly with the time you have left, what are the sovereign things that exist in your story that you have to steward? For, for me, one was around getting back to sort of like a charismatic vision of prayer and revival that was in me from the earliest days. Um, the other one was like one-on-one mentoring, like raising up leaders. I've, I've always had the privilege of being mentored by like these breathtaking, unique leaders. And I've always wanted to pour that into others. Uh, one is living in radical community. Like I've always tried to basically live in like cult-like circumstances. Like I'm always like, let's share our money and let's yeah. live. <laughs> and, and it's always just a little bit too much for everybody else. And, um, yeah, and then I've, I've really cared about basically shaping culture, like what Christians do in the world to make the world more like God wants it to be. And part of that's being in New York. Part of it is being the spiritual director for an organization called Praxis that does a sort of redemptive entrepreneurship. So those are the, the, the sort of four themes, and I'm like, I'm just going to build the second half of my life on it. So you live the second half differently than the first half, but you do it with clarity and urgency because you have an awareness of the stakes. Yeah. I'm trying to be real intentional the first 40 days of 40. Um, I just felt the Lord kind of invited me to, like, consecrate this decade a little bit. And maybe the second half of my life, the whole thing. But one of the things I'm doing is I'm texting a different um, pastor or leader in my life each day uh, for the 40 days and asking them to pray for me. That day, if I, it, you know, not necessarily you have to get any words or anything, but just to pray for me and asking for one book that I should buy and read. So, John Tyson, would you pray for me at some point today? And would you tell me one book that you think I should buy and read? Oh, wow. I mean, I mean yes, I definitely will pray for you today. One book, like the one. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, did, I, did we talk about uh, an attentive life? Last no. time we chat. Uh-uh. Yeah, man, I read that. Okay. An Attentive Life by Leighton uh, Ford. And that definitely just, you know, I, I, I wept and resonated at a very profound level from that book. And it's basically learning to pay attention to where God is working. And he, he is like a, a Presbyterian. He's Billy Graham's brother-in-law um, in his 70s, Presbyterian, but, you know, a lot of sort of liturgical. The whole thing is framed around the, uh, the daily calendar, the church calendar. Um, but it would, it just, it struck me with particular depth. I would, I would recommend that book as a way of seeing God in ways perhaps you haven't before. So I've set aside a section of my library, a bookshelf, and I'm going to put all 40 books on there and write on the inside, which leader told me to read it and what day. Wow. So you're, I love it. Yeah. I just think that would be a cool, you know, our mutual friend, Phil Manginelli told me to read Interior Castle by St. Teresa of Avila. Have you read that? Oh, I haven't read that. <laughs> of course, Phil would give me a book from like 1412 or something. <laughs> Gosh, I love Phil. He is definitely one of the good guys, isn't he? 
Oh man. He I tell him a lot. He's the secret sauce behind a bazillion pastors that everyone else knows, but they don't know Phil. He I love him so much. I mean, he is a deep, deep kindred source of joy in my life. Yeah. I'm glad he put you back there. Oh my gosh. I, I he I actually he was in town last week and so I saw him and he was like Okay, before you start, because I kind of told him I'm doing a couple of different things for these first 40 days. And and so I kind of said one of them to him as kind of like, hey, I want to make sure you're this vibes with you spiritually. You think this is a good idea? And he and that's when he told me to read that book. And I was like, well, that's scary. A whole book about an interior castle. Enneagram sevens don't want that stuff, John. You know, well, I mean, while we're talking about um, while we're talking about books, I tell you a book that probably rocked me more than any other book. And I I read it in the woods and I sat under a tree weeping, saying, where has this theology been my whole life? Terrible title, Lectures on Calvinism by Abraham Kuyper. Okay, I'm writing it down. It's actually not really that much about Calvinism. It's more about God's, it's, it's basically God's vision for the renewal of culture and I, I mean, it's, it's, it's a series of lectures uh, that he did at Princeton University, I believe. And it will just show you how basically how watered down modern culture has become compared to 100 years ago. But the level of like just expanding your vision of what God's doing in the world, that, that, that's the kale of your reading. You know, it's not, it's not the, um, that's it's right. not the donuts of your reading, it's the kale. But I remember that that book basically blew my vision apart of how big the kingdom of God God is and what the Lordship of Jesus looked like. So maybe okay, just- Okay, so would you pick that one over an attentive life? Oh, I, was, I, I mean, I was trying to be a little- Now, don't just put put an attentive life on the official bookshelf and just okay. put that one in the pile to read one time. Okay, so I order them both, but the one that gets John Tyson's name on the inside and today's date is an attentive life. Yeah, that will that will do your heart real like the end of several chapters, I, I found myself spontaneously bursting into to deep weeping. Like, I want that. I want to live like that. I want to see God like that. I want a depth like that. It was a book that really ministered to my heart. Now, look, I've written a few books. I don't get a ton of letters like, your book changed my life. And I don't think I've written to anybody saying, your book changed my life. But I wrote a letter saying, thank you for your book it moved me at a, at a profound so that, that's what it did for me did and he write I, you back did he say anything back no but they i tell you what they did which was almost as nice is they put me on their book list whenever their organization puts out new books so now <laughs> i get like free that's that's a that's the way i feel loved so. yeah yeah that's right i absolutely love i mean when people send us letters saying that our that my books matter to them that just feels like Man, they wrote that with their hand. They put in, they found yeah. an address. They put a stamp on an envelope and they mailed that here, having no idea if I would ever see it. And we see them all. I mean, they come to the office. We see them all. But man, it feels like such a a gift with no strings attached that they are just offering back to us after they've read a piece of our work. I am definitely not a great author. I am definitely more verbal, you know? So it's like, if I can give the talk in an hour versus writing it down, I'll do it, I'll, I'll give the talk mm-hmm. 10 times out of 10. But I've been so shaped by books and it's such an intimate medium where people like literally sit with you and allow you into their heart, their mind, their imagination. 
And I've always considered writing books such a profound responsibility and a privilege. And uh, when you do get those pieces of feedback, it just makes you go, wow, what an honour that someone would grant the time with, our such, with such short attention spans today, that someone would, like, sit with this thing and see it through. So it is, it is a, a real, a real uh, joy when that happens. I feel that a lot with podcasts too when I go, man, there are so many people right now who are choosing to let John and I be in their ears. Like Thank you, everybody. We have their, Thank you. So, I know. It's just so generous. I think you could have trusted anybody with this hour and you've trusted us. I I do not take that lightly. Yeah, me either. It's a, it's a real privilege. Okay. So speaking of, can we talk for a second about the Altars podcast? Yes. Yes. John, it's so great. Y'all went to the locations where revivals happened in northeastern part of the U.S. and you recorded from those locations. Yeah, we did. Yes, that is so cool. Are there? Is there a season two coming? What's the plan? Yes, season two's done. Season two is a bunch of interviews. So I've got uh, Michael Miller from Upper Room, Eric Johnson from Bethel, my coach and mentor, Dr. David Ireland, who has one of the the most unbelievable prayer cultures at his church. I've got Ebony Small. Mm. Uh, I, I basically just uh, I got John Mark Comer on there on contemplative prayer. Uh, that's going to be a good one. So that's already done. It's just getting edited. Oh, great. Let, let me tell you, in that whole tour, the thing that just shook me, put the fear of God in me, was um, visiting John Nash's grave. Why? Because I, I just realized so it was basically Finney, Finney, Finney and, uh, sorry, John Nash, Daniel Nash. John Nash was the mathematician. Um, okay, Daniel Nash. Okay. Yeah, Father Daniel Nash. Um and Abel Clary, Finney, what happened in Rochester, which, you know, I don't want to rehash it all or whatever, but some church historians believe it was the single greatest outpouring of the Holy Spirit in church history, meaning it was the most radical. It's basically God took over a whole city with almost no resistance. 100,000 people converted in 96 sermons. Wow. Let that sink in. And it was like cultural elites all the way from the top, lawyers, politicians, all the way down to the people in the lowest economic settings, and there was no resistance. And so when Finney contrasts Rochester with Boston, he said basically in Boston they had a fear, they had a fear of man. The Christians were afraid of what was then the universalists, um, which is what we would call in, in our cultural context, it would be sort of like the secular elites, the academics, you know, the Yale professors sort of a thing. And that fear of their opinions of being seen as like too enthusiastic about religion hindered the work of the Holy Spirit. But he said in Rochester, it was just, it was a total breakthrough. But anyway, the whole thing was fueled um, by Daniel Nash's prayers. And so when you read about the accounts of prayer and intercession, and I came back and I was like, I went into a season of deep repentance, like, I am not combining the word of God in prayer. I'm giving talks, you know, I'm taking them lightly. I'm saying, well, this is God's word. He'll use it. I'm not contending. And uh, so but I think, oh, gosh, I, no, I think I'd already come back from Hawaii uh, when we had talked. But um, I got to hang out with Lauren Cunningham, who's the founder of YWAM, and he got a tour of the Hebrides. Um, he got a personal tour of the Hebrides and where the Hebrides revival happened. And um, which to me was just 
unbelievable. But in, in, yeah. the, in, the, in the Hebrides, they would basically spend four or five hours praying before every meeting and then pray during the meeting. And I had, I was like, I have, don't have that prayer coverage. You want to know why there's no power? Who's, who's praying like that? Who was linked up with an intercessor? was contending for breakthrough when you preach and pray and I was like that's what shook me the most so I came back and I I, I literally have been living in the fear of God since we did that that podcast yeah when I started listening when the series started coming out I thought I don't know that anybody else is doing anything like this John giving us I'm sure there are no. I mean I was just trying to you know and it actually got shut down because of COVID we had a bunch of other stuff we were going to do but um, so that was like a deposit. That was a seed in the ground with more to come. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, I'm glad there's more to come. Hey, the last question. We, oh, is there anything we didn't talk about that you want to talk about, by the way? No, this is just always a great chat. I wish, it was as in, I wish this was in person. I know. And we could just be hanging out chatting. I know. Maybe one of these days. Me too. We will hop over and do a quick YouTube video so we'll at least see each other's faces. And people can see our faces if they hop over to YouTube. But I know, I man, we were, my hope, what I'd love to talk about is New York for a couple of minutes when we hop onto YouTube because I have such a deep love for it. Yes. So let's just do a love fest for New York. But okay, so you know the last question you always ask, you just answered it a few months ago, so you're going to have to come up with a new answer. But your last one changed my life because now I listen to John Coltrane because the show's called That Sounds Fun. Tell me something else y'all do for fun at the Tyson household. Oh. <sighs> Man, you know, we play a lot of board games. We play a lot. Do you? Oh, my gosh. One of the, so my wife grew up in a board game playing family. And one of the things she said to me is what board games do is reveal personality traits. Mm. And so my wife has actually banned me from playing Monopoly with the family because I'm too competitive. She's like, I'm literally not allowed to play. I'm like, you know, I've got my daughter in tears because I'm like confiscating properties. And She's like, it's a game. Calm down, Mr. Competitive. Oh, I love um, it. We, we played a lot of board games. We put uh, each family member has a chance to sort of put the music that they want on while the game's being played. Okay. And we just sit around and it's just family time. It's laughing and it's seeing what comes up. And the biggest thing that comes from that is uh, jokes that form family culture that you laugh about for the rest of your life. And so we've got a lot of silly comments that have come up that are now sort of like uh, axioms of our family. So it's old school, but it's better than just all, you know, playing video, violent video games. Right. Judgment. Say it's that. Like, no, you're allowed to say that here. I am with you on that. Um, do y'all watch TV or do you like on a normal, in a normal week, are y'all playing board games every night? Or are you playing a couple of times? Are you watching TV? Like what's a, do y'all watch Netflix and stuff as well? I'm like a zero TV guy. Are you? Uh, yeah. I mean, out, not out of legalism, out of just, you know, I mean, I got too much on my plate. Uh, but uh, one of the things that struck me when I read Emotionally Healthy Spirituality is they like, everybody has the right to TV. Don't moralize it. I'm like, look, you do whatever you want with your time. Um, so uh, it's just not my thing. My, my kids my kids uh, watch a little bit, not much. My wife watches a little bit, not much. Um, so that's not like a huge thing. We probably play games probably one or two nights a week. In the summer, it's, it's a little bit more because it's in COVID, it's a heck of a lot. Sure, yeah. I've been around. That's right. I'm not being judgmental at all because I watch a lot of TV but I will tell you, the people I know who pray the most watch the least shows. 
You know, it's I just mean, true. The, it's just science and math. You just don't have the time. Yeah, and I think the other th- the other thing is like the older I get, the more what I'm after. Jonathan Edwards actually wrote this. He said, "I just don't want to do anything that dulls my appetite for the things of God." And in such a culture of distraction, it's so. You know, God is so gentle in many ways. He's getting our attention in very, very subtle ways. And I'll often find if you know, if I go into like a, a season binge of um, a show on Netflix or something, when I come out of it, I'm like, is God even real? Am I on a planet? Is this what is, I mean, I'm so disoriented from reality. I feel so separated from reality. So I, I, I'll watch um, an occasional movie, but, you know, but to be honest with you, these days, like I rarely finish a movie. I'm like, no, I get it. You know, I'm yeah. terrible for it. I'm not much fun. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. I just feel a, I am feeling a, as I'm thinking through my next decade, I'm feeling a, how much time do you want to spend, especially because I don't have a husband or kids yet. It's just me. How much time do I want to spend in my life watching TV for the next decade? Some, not zero for me, because I think it's really entertaining, but. How much? So I was interested to hear your answer to that. Live by your convictions. It's it's totally up to the individual. There's no law. There's no right. there's no gospel law in this. So whatever yep. people's whatever's in their hearts. There you go. All right. Thanks, John. Let's hop over to YouTube. But thanks for writing beautiful resistance. I'm excited for our people to get to read it. I feel like it's the right book at the right time. No worries. Thank you for having me on and being willing to talk about it. I really appreciate it. Friends, listen, listen, how about that one, right? How about that one with John Tyson? That guy didn't play around, man. He brings it. But listen, we hopped over to YouTube and kept chatting, talking about New York City and some other interesting topics. I think you'll enjoy it. So make sure you head to youtube.com slash Annie F. Downs TSF. That sounds fun. And check out the rest of our conversation and grab a copy of John's new book, beautiful resistance today. It's out today. It is one of those where I'm I'm telling you, if you read a book with a small group this fall, if you have some friends that y'all been wanting to have a new book for book club, if you and your family are wanting to read something together, grab about five or 10 of these today and pass them out. I think they are so helpful and timely with what we've experienced so far in 2020, but also with what we're walking toward this fall, particularly the national and local elections. And make sure you give John a follow on Instagram, Twitter, all the places. Tell him thanks for being on the show and how much you enjoyed it. You guys cannot know how much it matters to our guests when y'all tell them that you enjoyed their episode. They always tell me how much it matters that y'all reach out to them because y'all are so kind about that. It just means the world to me. So I'm just really grateful for how y'all love the guests that we have on here. Really grateful. If you need anything else from me, you know I'm embarrassingly easy to find. Annie F. Downs, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the places you may need me. That is how you can find me. And we are back here Thursday with our Enneagram Fives. Y'all aren't even ready. You aren't even ready for these fives. It's so, so good. So you guys, make sure you subscribe if you haven't yet so you don't miss any of the episodes that are coming up. And if you get a chance to rate or review the show, that would mean a lot. I think that's it for me today, friends. Go out or stay home and do something that sounds fun to you. I'll do the same. And we'll see you back here on Thursday with our Enneagram Fives.